Hello, everybody. Welcome to UAP Book Club at Quantum Witch Cafe. Thank you so much to everybody in the chat for joining. And as usual, this is your place to stop, talk about anything wild, strange. Well, not wild. Well, maybe wild. Strange, UFO, UAP, if you're the fancy people, which everybody here is fancy. So um, UAP, I guess. Today we have um, a small club. We have Nathan, Graham, Vinny, and Jay. And um, we are going to be talking about... Project Beta, which I have on my phone, so I can't hold up the book because I got it on Kindle. Um, there we go. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I'm going to start off with how we usually start off, making fun of Jay. I'm just kidding. We did that all um, But um, just the comments, my comments on the book, and then we'll just go around saying what you thought about the book and um, like kind of like your grand overview of it, I guess. Um, and I need to write a review for this one because I got it on Amazon and I, after meeting Graham, I know how important <laughs> reviews are. Now I know authors. So they're like, <laughs> you got to write a review. But to me, um, this is what I wrote for the review. Project Beta is an in-depth history about the birth of disinformation um, that was formed, as Greg puts it, as the modern UFO myth. The book has key figures such as Richard Doty and Paul Benowitz and other people that were like uh, doing this sort of disinformation at the time. And they also kind of became questionable after this. Um, but Greg writes it historically and as it happened, which I always appreciate. Um, I thought it was, the first thing I thought was, of course, you know, um, it's crazy because it has all the different um, phenomena happening. It has the cattle mutilations, it has the abductions, and then we have like government men in black, you know. So um, it has a little bit of everything, and he writes it very well. So those are my quick impressions of Project Beta. Who wants to go, go next? <laughs> yeah, Nathan. Nathan. All right, fine. Uh, so uh, I enjoyed the book a lot. Uh, I think this book is um, a very timely uh sort of conversation particularly where we are with this topic today uh where we're on the cusp of potential whistleblower legislation that may make some room for folks who've been involved with these programs to come forward and share what they know uh, i think it's an important book for anyone that has a serious interest in this topic because it reveals the deep complexity that is inherent in the study of ufos and the sorted phenomena some of which you mentioned priscilla uh, also, the degree to which our government, the U.S. government anyway, is deeply involved in uh, this topic, not only for an interest in it in it of itself, but also for ul ulterior interest uh, in using the UFO uh, sort of interest and fanaticism as a kind of smokescreen for other activities that the U.S. government it has been and is currently involved with. And I think it's an important lesson for all of us to be mindful of, uh, particularly those of us who are in conversation with folks that may be really close to some secrets, quote unquote, uh, just how complex and, uh, and challenging this uh, topic can be to parse the truth from the fiction. Uh, I also think it's a good reminder in terms of, you know, how heavily invested a person can get in a certain way of thinking about this. And you can really craft an entire world out of uh, maybe very little actual information and how that can be uh, in the wrong hands, very destabilizing and, and uh, you know, harmful to oneself and even to those that care about you. So I think it's, uh, it's helpful to kind of keep this 
story of a real story in mind as, uh, as anyone who has an interest in this is pursuing it seriously. Yeah, I was in, I was interested to see how Greg will actually approach the contentious subject of uh, Mr. R. Doty, um, as somebody who's who's met him twice this year now. Both sides of actually reading this book, if you like, I was um, I, I was struck by if you meet him, he's human, and then was Greg going to do a hatchet job on him? Was it going to be a kind of you know just a hit piece on on how bad he is and how bad he is for ufology? And actually, I was struck by something that Greg said towards the end of the book, and this is just one little bit where he said, "Look, you know, nothing's just black and white in ufology, and people like to think it is. And there's quite a lot of people who say, "Look, no, it's this, or no, it's that, and there's no in between. But actually, when it comes down to it, the shades of grey." And like everything else in life, there are shades of gray, there are differences. It's not just one side or the other. So it was quite illuminating to see that somebody did actually share that point of view, something that I've held for quite a long time. Um, and just as, as Nathan said, how easy it is to fall down a rabbit hole when you believe in something so strongly, um, but then you're fed information that appeals to your worldview. You know, it reinforces that belief and actually not just reinforces it, but strengthens it and actually sends you down the rabbit hole even further, looking for, looking for things which necessarily may not be there. But because somebody points in the right direction, feeds you a little bit of maybe true information, but with misinformation sort of mixed in, because, you know, the biggest lies are always, held, um, always best between two truths, if you like, then it's a good way to actually misdirect people, um, especially if there were things that the military and other three-letter agencies, you know, you name, you, you name it, they might have been involved, were actually trying to hide or didn't want to be discovered. And how, far better to get somebody who they can discredit, who they can um, who misinform and push in a different direction. So yes, this was a very important book. I take the point about Nathan said about the parallels between now, because we have new whistleblowers, people are coming forward saying that they have answers. They may not have the full picture, but how much do we trust them? How much do we take on board what they say? How much do we invest ourselves in their message? And that's a, um, you know, a, a lesson that yes, okay, in the past people have said that they're involved and, and they know this and that, uh, and they have some of the answers, uh, but how much do we trust them? All right, Jay or Vinny can go. You guys can. <laughs> you wanna have a nice off Vinny? What's it's it? going all to do. Come on, man. <laughs> Only if you crack another LaCroix or LaCroix. I can't say it right. LaCroix. 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 Um, all right, I'll go. Um, let's see. I, I I really deeply appreciated the book. <clears throat> I um, I met Greg earlier this year at the Archives of the Impossible Conference and was on a panel with him and uh, found him to be a, a really uh, a brilliant and understated guy. And I, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with them there and the book itself, it's, it's pretty harrowing, right? You know, it's harrowing to, as somebody that's involved in the field, it's harrowing because the whole, the whole book is a warning essentially, um, to folks like us in many ways. Um, and you know, you're, you know, two of the biggest, we won't say bad guys because Greg actually is relatively, clinical about how he approaches kind of judgment calls with regard to, you know, national security work and things like that. Um, and he's pretty careful about that. But, um, you know, these, you know, Bill Moore and, and Richard Doty kind of have two distinct roles here in that Richard Doty is essentially, you know, 
um, running a disinformation scheme for this guy, Paul Benowitz, who uh, lives and works in direct proximity to an Air Force base. And he's an engineer that has all sorts of hobbyist equipment and is like throwing all sorts of like sensory equipment towards this Air Force base. And so on a kind of overarching level on from the outset and from the outside, you can see why uh, folks at the Air Force Base, Richard Doty and other people like that, would be looking at this guy and being like, eh, we should we should really follow this. You know what I mean? There, there was a there there in terms of uh, the guy was also doing work with the Navy and the Air Force, Paul Benowitz. Um, and he was also a very earnest individual um, who thought he had a patriotic duty to report to the Air Force that he believed that there were um, extraterrestrial craft in, in his estimation and things like that, um, kind of buzzing, buzzing the property and, and doing all sorts of things. So, you know, I, I can understand from Greg's book that I can see both sides of the issue in some ways. Uh, however, you know, by the end of the book, you see Richard Doty, that Paul Benowitz was left a, a very broken man, uh, in many ways. And, um, and you hear consistently Richard Doty speaking out of at least two sides of his mouth consistently. Um, you know, the other kind of quote unquote bad guy would be Bill Moore, um, who was a prominent ufologist researcher back in the day, who it turned out was feeding information back to intelligence community about other ufology researchers, um, who was kind of feeding half truths out and things like that. But he eventually confessed at a big uh, MUFON convention, I think in 89 or 90. And so, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale, the whole book. And it's, it's the kind of situation where you read a book like that and it's alarming because you wonder, you know, this is the eighties and here we are 35 years later. Um, and you wonder, you can't help but wonder with a little bit of paranoia, how much of this is happening now? How much of this will continue to happen in the future? What have we missed from other people over the last years in the intervening amount of time? And um, and it's it's one of the reasons why I I kind of stay away from from craft for the most part. You know what I mean? I I stick directly to talking with experiencers and things like that. And it's partially because when I used to do work with Richard Dolan uh, for his member site. I would see emails from people that were like wanting to talk about experimental propulsion and all this stuff. And I would just be like, you know, like all three monkeys, you know, like, not, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want anything to do with it because the closer it feels like to me anyway, like the closer you get to that, um, that side of things, uh, the more potentially of a hall of mirrors you find yourself in. Yeah, really well said. I think, my kind of uh, this might sound slightly controversial and I, but what i'm going to do is not put everything that i believe in the past i thought you know richard dirty was to blame for everything that happened to paul benowitz and it, what i learned from this book is there's so much more um, there's so many more intricacies to it than that that Paul Benowitz was entrenched in this subject way before he met Richard Doty. He was a member of APRO. He had some really serious beliefs when he encountered Myrna Hansen in 1980, who was, uh, you know, had seen lights and experienced something. And, and Paul Benowitz started putting together these really strong belief systems about aliens way before he met Richard Doty. And he seemed very adamant about these aliens as well, that they were here for 
this and that, and it was fairly negative. Now, I always assumed that Doty had planted these seeds in Benowitz. You know, he was just a scientist who had seen lights and it was quite innocent. But no, you know, it, it really shocked me that it was a lot much, a lot more deeper than that. And then you add in the whole huge cattle mutilation aspect to, to this story, which I did not know was there until this book. Then you add in people like Leo Sprinkle, Bill Moore, as you say, and the web just gets bigger and bigger and, and more difficult to kind of put the finger on one person for this and that. And that's really what opened it up to me. And it doesn't make Doty, it doesn't put him in a good light, you know, any more than I sort of held him in this one position before, but it, it certainly, it doesn't make the conversation as black and white as like Doty is to blame for this. It, it's really more than that for me. So yeah, it was interesting. Before you guys go on, um, we have Greg is joining us early and he's he's ready to go. So um, we've got people nodding saying, I hope Greg pops on. So this is the surprise, guys. And um, I'm going to welcome Greg to Quantum Witch Cafe to talk about his amazing book, Project Beta, that is definitely something you need to read if you plan on being in UFO world at all. So welcome, Greg. Thank hey, you so much for coming. Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to hop on with us. Uh, your book was a big eye-opener for me. Um, I kind of knew a little bit about um, all the individuals, but after reading your book, I feel like I have a more complete picture. So thank you for writing such an amazing book. Cool, thanks. I had a lot of Oh, nope. I'm sorry. Oh, I meant to one. mute myself. My goodness. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it was... It was kind of a incredible trip to write that book. And I was just, the only reason I wrote it is because I proposed it to Patrick Quige at, um, uh, what did he have? Uh, Paraview, Paraview Press. And he had a, he had a uh, deal with um, Pocket Books, which is Simon & Schuster. He was looking for projects and he said, well, throw free projects at me. And that was the one, one of the things I proposed. And he said, well, yeah, that's, that's the one you should do. And he's, uh, when I started writing it, he said, write it like a movie, write it like a story. So it flows like a story. That's why it basically starts. I've specifically started it with the dark and stormy night kind of thing, just as a, almost as a trope, but it worked very well for the, um, uh, for the opening of the book. I mean, it opens with, you know, lightning hitting the top of this mountain or whatever. It almost, you know, this mad scientist looking thing. So, um, yeah, I found out so, let me turn off my bing dinger on my phone. I found out so many things working on that book that I just not would have, would not have expected. Um, I knew Bill Moore. I had known him since 1987 when I was a little kid and thought, oh, UFOs are fun. You know, I haven't, I haven't really been into them since I was a kid. And this was when I was right out of college. So I just happened to work down the street from Bill Moore in a in an office, and um, I found that his office was a block away from me in Hollywood. So I went and visited him, and we became friends. And you know, he was the one that basically gave me entry to talk to all these people about the book for for, for the book. So you know, he he got me in touch with people from intelligence and Doty and and Gabe Valdez even um, the uh, New Mexico State Highway Patrolman who became a very good friend. I used to go out and visit him and his family. They're always very nice to me. And when Gabe passed away, I went to his funeral. 
Um, and I made a lot of friends actually working on that book. A lot of friends in New Mexico who are still friends of mine. And uh, I may move to New Mexico eventually. I just like it there. And I'd been going there since I was uh, in my 20s anyway. Uh, I just like it. And so it seemed like the, the book was almost a natural progression uh, for me to do because I was familiar with the area and, and, and knew a few people there. So, but yeah, it's as um, I can't remember which one of you said this, but um, you said it was almost like a lesson. It should be learned to read that because you can, you get an idea of what the motivations are behind any kind of release from the government. I'm very cynical about any kind of information coming from the government. What I think it, you know, it's to me, it's always okay. What are they pulling now? You know, what, 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 what do they want us to believe in furtherance of whatever? Because I think I really think deeply that, and I thought this from the beginning, that the New York Times article and everything else had little to do with the UFOs and mostly to do with um, defense and intelligence stuff that we probably won't ever know anything about. And apparently they're trying to back out of it now and say that, well, there were Chinese drones or something, which is what happens every time. There's a bait and switch every time this happens. It, it happened in the, I think in the 50s, 60s, 80s. Um, I can't cite exactly the, but I mean, I'm sure you guys can think of these things when they happened. Um, but, you know, like, like the Condon report, um, it's, it's, you know, we're going to get, finally get the government, you know, to talk about this. And it was, it was kind of fixed from the beginning. They just wanted to kind of keep people away from it because they couldn't explain it. Um, and I still think they can't explain it, but it can be used. It can be used for, you know, intelligence purposes or propaganda purposes or whatever. So that's why I'm really careful about it and um, why everybody says, well, this is finally it. I'm thinking well, it's been finally it over and over and over and over and over again. And so I'm not interested in it as this is finally it. I'm more interested in it as what is be what is it being used for this time and how is it being used and how is it being used now that there's a, there's social networks, there's the internet, there's email. Back when this stuff happened to Benowitz, none of that existed. So they actually had to, you know, that's why they needed people out in the field talking to people and looking at mail and opening people's mail and all that other stuff. They needed to know what they were doing, who they were talking to, um, what their relationships were, what the belief systems were. And that's very easy now. You just go on social media and find out. In fact, I see people doing this on social media and it makes me kind of wonder. They will put something up that's a very, like a statement. What do you think of this? And it's, it's designed to make people react emotionally. And so everybody says, I think this, it's like when a radio station or something says, what was your worst date? You know, everybody's going to react. So if somebody says, you know, what's the worst UFO video you've ever seen? Oh, everybody's going to react. And so, you know, you can start to make little maps of who knows who, who's what, whose opinions are what, all that. And, you know, of course that's slightly paranoid. I know it is. Um, but it's also it's also been used in the past and it's a very easy tool to use when you want to map out like who knows who because before they had to do this kind of brute force just by talking to people now all you have to do is look at electronic uh you know um re relationships and signals going back and forth so i i could ramble for the next hour but i won't That's, <laughs> you have every reason to feel that way you met these people personally and you wrote a book and you formed relationships with uh, it sounds like everybody um in the book you were able to make a connection with. So um, I could totally understand where you're coming from. And somebody just said, um, book purchase, he won me over. So here we go. <laughs> you, you got another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
All Thank right, you. guys. Uh, government, government's basically screen here. Go Governments ahead. spin everything anyway. It doesn't matter what the message is, whether it's oh. U you know, UFOs or other things, don't they? I don't know what's going on. I'm so sorry. Um, Governments spin messages for the economy, for defense, for uh, so for social programs. You always have to look beyond what they're saying to to try and work out you know where they're coming from. What are they trying to push? What what's the hidden agenda? So ufology should be no different. Um, and I can't see why people don't see that. Um, you know, where, where, and that's what you mentioned in the book about things being black and white. They're not. There are shades of gray, aren't there? So um, the other thing is really because this is a rabbit hole that effectively uh, Paul Benevitz went into. Uh, he descended into it. How much do you find yourself going down that, that same rabbit hole when you were writing the book and researching the book? I tried not to. Um, what I tried to do when I was doing the book is get as many sources as possible and as many like um, open source and outside the loop sources that I could. Uh, like if um, Richard Doty told me something, of course, I'd take it with a huge grain of salt. Sometimes I'd include it, but I'd also say in the book, the only source for this was Richard Doty. At least I tried to do that. I think I did. Um, but then I'd also see like he'd say, oh, well, Paul was seeing these pictures on his screen, but the but that was the NSA beaming that into his house from across the street. It's like, okay, that could be. Um, but then I hear from Gabe Valdez, he went to his house and saw these things on his screen. So it actually was happening. Now, I don't know if they came from where Doty said they were coming from, but I'm going to assume that they did because where else would these signals be coming from? So that was just one example. But, you know, I, I just tried... You know, because people, I tried to see if I could triangulate inside and outside sources. Um, and if they matched up, I would include them in the narrative. And if they didn't, I would either qualify it very heavily or I threw it out. Um, there's probably, you know, 75% of the stuff that I looked into, I didn't include because I couldn't, I couldn't verify it. I couldn't verify the, um, the facts of the case because I don't have access to those people. So you know, as much as I could to make the story hold together and from the Benowitz and you, you know, public facing point of view, I tried to make a story that made sense held together and showed what was going on at the time, what was, what the motivations were, um, and, and how people can be led astray very quickly if they just believe what they, what they want to believe. If, if you tell somebody something they already believe or they're emotionally attached to, they're going to believe you a lot quicker than if you tell them something that's that's not in their worldview or they don't like or whatever. And then you can hang all kinds of other BS on top of whatever that thing is that they like. Um, and the crazier and the more out there the person is and in their belief system, the more outlandish things you can hang on there and have them believe that narrative. And that, you know, that's dangerous. And I, I see this in, in UFO and paranormal, especially UFO stuff, a lot. Um, somebody says, hey, I'm an insider. Hey, you've, you know, you're, you're, you're doing good work. And here's a little secret. And um, this, this still goes on. It still goes on now. Serpo was another thing. That, 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 that was a whole, you know, fiasco with somebody saying, hey, you're doing a good job. Here's some information. Put it out there. And it had nothing to do with UFOs. It probably had to do with, um, you know, uh, some kind of weapon system that was being developed at the time. Um, but if you believe what you want to believe, you're going to be led astray very quickly. You have to weigh 
evidence and not have a belief, you know, especially with the UFO thing, because there's no, you know, you don't have a, um, you don't have a way to uh, verify a lot of this information that you can't reproduce a UFO on demand. Um, so it's a really, you know, really good um, Rorschach blot for the UFO ufology tarot thing. The first thing I said in the video was the UFO is a Rorschach blot because it really is. It can you you can hang any story you want on it and have people almost anybody that's into the subject to believe what you want to believe. Um, so which is why I'm kind of um, viciously agnostic about it. Uh, I and I can also believe four or five things at once. I, I entertain four or five ideas or ten at once and don't you know, from the most outlandish to the most skeptical. I have those running around in my head all the time. And it's, uh, it's a little difficult. It sounds like you're fence sitting, but it's, it's the only sane thing I can think to do and still keep my antenna up. Sounds healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. You could have a completely stupid, you know, message, but there's a grain of something very valuable in that. Um, you write that in the book. You say there was like, um, this letter had one gem of truth in it, you know, uh, or something that to that effect. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to not be like that. And I think that's a healthy way to be, as Graham said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, I can't remember the letter that you're referring to. It's but with regards to intelligence stuff, that's the other thing. I listened to everything that these intelligence people told me, wrote it all down. They wouldn't let me record anything. So after the interview, I just sat down with it with a piece of paper and just furiously wrote down in a book notebook everything they told me so i'd remember it and a lot of these things you wouldn't find out if they were they were true most a lot of them i didn't find out till later whether they were true or false after the book was published but you have to hold on to all this information and days weeks months years later you may find out that that what they were telling you was true false part of another story whatever it is Another weird thing that happened, and I will stop again and let you guys ask more questions, which I found very interesting was these um, intelligence people, they would tell me a story with no context. I'd have no idea what they were talking about. Like, you know, we did so-and-so in Afghanistan this year and the operation involved this. When you meet so-and-so, tell them that. I'm like, okay. So I go to the next person. And if you weren't on time, they wouldn't talk to you. That's another thing. You had to be absolutely 100% to the second on time to meet them. So I got there early every time. And I know they did. They were probably watching me. I have no idea. But we would sit down and I'd say, so-and-so told me to tell you this. And I would give them that story. And they'd go, oh, that's what that was. Because they weren't privy to that information at the time. So basically, I was giving a piece of a puzzle that they were not cleared to know but it's you know 20 30 years later so it's okay for them to know as long as they don't break their oath and tell each other so they would tell me a third party a cutout that knew nothing about what was going on but it would provide them some context for something they always wanted to know that they were left out of the loop on and in that way what i was doing was taking a present to that next person so that they would be more apt to talk to me and be at their ease and, and tell me what I needed to know as much as they could. And I noticed this more than once. So, you know, you find out some of the stuff you hear in spy movies and all that is true. And what's what uh, intelligence people, their, their, their currency is information. That's the most valuable thing they can possibly have. 
And if you can give them a piece of information that's valuable to them, they immediately open up to you. And I, I, it just made me kind of, it made me feel weird and sort of kind of, what's the word? Not special, but just kind of like, okay, I'm doing something here that makes a difference, at least in these people's lives and it's helping my book. So that's just a weird little story. I've talked about it before, but it was just something I found out while I was working on the book. It made me more fascinated with the intelligence community. I'm, I'm a huge intelligence and spy fanatic now. I think one of the best spy movies, what, what was it? Um, um, uh, what was the Chuck Barris one with, uh, with George Clooney directed? Uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. That's one of the oh, best right I've ever seen. It's like I'm watching it and go, oh, my God, that's stuff I was told about. So whoever was messing with Chuck Barris knew what they were doing or he talked to the right people or whatever. <laughs> Greg, I have a question, and it's with regards to the early stages of the book where it seemed that Rick Doty wasn't as forthcoming with interviews as he may sort of be nowadays. Was there a stage where you thought that it might take a while and maybe even not get an interview with him and you'd have to kind of get the information from third parties to kind of get the story out? No, because uh, Bill told me he would put in a good word for me and, right. and say that I, I was I was okay to talk to. And I was. Now Doty hates me, won't talk to me anymore. But at the time, he was very nice and we had a we had one meeting and it was like three hours uh, at a Denny's. And every time you, I met with these people, they would sit in the corner seat facing the door. <laughs> so they could face the door and be in the corner so there was no, they could see everything in the restaurant. It was sure. every single one of them did the same thing. Um, but yeah, we sat in that corner seat. He talked to me for three hours and I said, can I record it? He said, nope. So I had to drive back to Albuquerque from Grants, New Mexico, where he was at the time. Out, about an hour drive and the whole time I'm just going over and over and over in my mind. What what did we say? What did we say? What did we say? And as soon as I got to the hotel, I sat down and just pounded all out on my computer just to get it, you know, yeah. get it all down. I got like five or six single space pages out of everything we said. And of course, you know, I think four sentences of that that five pages or maybe a paragraph was was usable. The rest of it was just kind of unusable BS. But that's fine. You know, people say, why would you talk to Richard Doty? He lies all the time. Because every once in a while, he's going to tell you something that actually can be verified and makes sense. And, you know, or is very close to or gives you a hint. You just have to listen carefully and you have to be able to retain all this. And then when somebody says the same thing, that little key in your mind goes, yeah, that thing. And you and you've been able to verify it. I've got a quick question. It's not necessarily a quick question, but I've got a question along those lines. Um, at on page eighty-one, um, uh, Doty kind of takes credit for um, re, re, um, a kind of unearthing, rebirthing the Aztec New Mexico crash, right? And you know, as you put it in there, you know, Frank Scully in nineteen fifty-five was the first person to kind of really talk about that case. And it was widely understood to be a hoax. Doty kind of was proud, seemingly, of, of putting that back into the ether and back into the conversation. And of course, it fell out of favor yet again after that. And then in recent years, in the last couple of years, it's come back again because Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris wrote about it. So with a situation like that, like in the Hall of Mirrors, where are you at with cases like Aztec uh, at this point? Um, after all of that back and forth. I'm not sure where I am, am at with Aztec. 
I think that you can things that happen in history can be conflated because of time and 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 location. Um, and a lot of stuff was going on in New Mexico in the '40s, um, testing of things, V two rockets. The you know the, the paperclip scientists were there. Um, you know the mogul balloons were being sent up. All these things, and that things that happened during that time um, can easily be ported between different stories. Uh, as for Aztec, I'm not sure. I did go there once. I went there after I read William Steinman's book. When I was like 22 years old, I flew out there by myself, rented a car and drove all the way to the Aztec and drove to the spot that he said that the thing had crashed. And what I found was um, something like a concrete, um, somebody had poured a concrete foundation that was about 10 by 10 feet with some rebar sticking out of it or something. Not much else. Um, although while I, while I was there, this, the, I mean, I don't know how much stock you put in Aztec and I will continue with answering the question, but, um, I looked from the top of this mesa that I was on or cliff and at the bottom where the road was, cause the road curved around and came up to the top of this cliff. I looked down on the road. There was a white truck sitting there just with somebody in it looking at me. And I'm out in the middle of nowhere and there's nobody else around. And I'm just thinking, who is that? Why do they not move? So I got nervous and got in the car and, and started driving away. And as I drove down the, the road, two white trucks pulled in behind me and chased me. I mean, I started going faster and faster. I was going 70 miles an hour down this gravel road. I went so fast that all the dirt and gravel, I couldn't see the trucks behind me. I was so scared. I was like 21, 22. And I've got these two guys in, in in uh, dress shirts and sunglasses in white trucks chasing me. And so finally I said, okay, I'm in the middle of nowhere. They can kill me if they want to. I'm just going to stop and see what they want. So I slowed down and stopped and the trucks weren't there anymore. They had turned away somewhere. But that was a weird thing that happened to me when I went out to Aztec. I don't know who they were. They might've been, um, you know, El Paso gas company people wondering what I was doing out there. I have no idea because they have all these gas lines out there. But that was a really weird and strange thing that happened there, and it stays with me. Um, as for you know, all these crashed uh, uh, crashed vehicle thing uh, stories. I think some of them were military. I also think some of them maybe were not. But I also think that pieces people find, and this is a weird thing, and I've said this recently. I don't think those are pieces of something. I don't think they're the pieces of something that crashed. I think they're representations or avatars of things that crashed. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but I think that's why they can't be figured out because they just don't exist as, as normal material. And I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how to be logical about it, but that is my intuition about it. I had a question along the lines of the weird. So in chapter 18, uh, I was surprised to come across anecdotes about orbs uh that's something i didn't think i would read in this story so because uh, i just didn't know they were associated with oh in his house yeah so i mean what, what's your take on on the orbs and i know dodi mentioned that he had seen them in the house as well dodi i think may have bill moore told me he saw them mm -hmm. and people always tell me it's like well bill moore is a liar he lies to people it's like he has never lied to me not that I can tell. I've he's told me stuff, and years later I find out that it's true. Um, 
but what he said, and also he's a friend of mine. We're really good friends. We're still friends. I see him once or once or twice a year. Um, but what he told me was that he went to Paul's house and he looked up at the ceiling and there were these little things that were about softball or grapefruit sized peach colored lights. They just looked like globes. He said they were floating um, at it, on his ceiling, like where the ceiling meets the wall. And he said, he's like, Paul, what's that? And Paul said, oh yeah, those are here all the time. Like it wasn't any big deal to him. And he said, if you got on a ladder and got up and tried to do something like touch them, he said they would turn off, but they wouldn't blink out. He said, it would be like a, you turn off an incandescent light where it kind of fades out really fast. But he said, they looked, they looked three-dimensional. They weren't like a light shining on the, it was like a, like almost like a, he didn't say this, but what sounded to be like is if you had a soap bubble full, filled with smoke and you were shining a light at it. Um, he did not know what those things were. Um, there may have been some, some technology where you can beam a holographic image in. I don't know. There is now, if you look online, holographic images can be um, projected onto dust and, and um, uh, uh, moisture particles in the air by using, um, I think they have uh, a way to direct those things into like a certain area and then you shine a laser or a light at it and, it, and it'll project an image. It's very small, but um, if they can do that on a small scale, it probably means it's been able to be done on a larger scale for quite a while now. Um, that's just how this technology seems to work. It just, you know, it, like the um, uh, adaptive optics that I describe in the book that's used in astronomy now that was developed for spy technology in the late seventies. And in the early nineties, suddenly it was just, given to the astronomy community to be able to um, uh, focus telescopes by, by, by changing the reflective um, surface of a mirror to, to uh, adapt to the changes in the atmosphere, you know, air currents and stuff. But they did this for spy technology um, to, to track satellites. Um, and so I think what Benowitz was experiencing in a lot of cases was just high-tech spy technology that was being tested on him or used on him or, or uh, um, just almost as a, you know, uh, to see if the stuff would work. Um, and it was, a lot of it was probably developed at Kirtland anyway. So it was easy to just kind of port it out to where he was and see, see how it worked. And if they were, so, they were across the street, maybe they were using the technology there. I don't know. So, well, so apart from actually just trying to misinform him and misdirect him, they were maybe using him as a guinea pig as well for, for things they were developing in that kind yeah. of respect. Yeah, possibly. Well, um, I, I, I'm curious. I mean, did you look into the legality of any of what they did? I mean, it's not like they were constantly in his house. They had his phones tapped. They had, they were intercepting his mail. I mean, has no one ever filed a suit against the government or an agency about their involvement? No, they haven't. Them? They haven't. They should. Um, I've actually, I've had this, you know, the last few times I talk about the book, which was, was a while ago. I write up at the front, and I think one of you were saying, I mean, I tried to be very, you know, journalistic in the way I did it. I did not pass judgment in the book on what was done. I figure if you're reading the book and you see what's going on, you will have your own moral ideas about what was going on, and you're probably right. And I agree with you. It was wrong. It was probably illegal, though not all of it, um, and that I don't think there's been a prosecution because his family just didn't want to they don't rock the boat. 
it was difficult for them. In fact, in the book somewhere, I said, don't bother the family. They don't want to talk to you. His son kicked me out of the office when I asked if I could, if I could uh, talk to him about the book. He told me to leave immediately. I felt really bad, too. I felt like, oh, my God, I'm invading these people's privacy. Um, but it's, I think that some of it was covered by, you know, uh, law where you can, you know, if it has to do with national security, you can, you know, surreptitiously tap, look at and whatever at people's, uh, private, uh, lives and, and phone calls and all that. If you think they're communicating with people, uh, with enemy, um, advers with adversaries, um, and then some of it was probably a bit rogue and illegal, um, and some of that by Doty, because I think Doty got in trouble for that later. Actually, when he got when he got uh, drummed out of his uh, position as uh, in AFOSI for, um, I think he messed up a, some kind of uh, a uh, operation Eastern Europe. Um, but that, that, at least that's what I remember. But anyway, I also had a friend, my friend Walter Bosley, who was in uh, AFOSI about 10 years after Doty. And I said, did you know Doty? He said, no, I didn't, but I knew about him. And I said, how? And she said, because he was using his example of what not to do. <laughs> he, had, he had just really overstepped what he was supposed to do. Because people in OSI are actually given, apparently, a lot of leeway as long as they stay within the law and stay within the mission statement about what they can do. Um, but... Uh, uh, Rick went a little bit further and I think he likes messing with people. That's why he's, that's why he's good at what he does. Um, he's a, he's, um, he's basically a kind of a really good troll. <laughs> and as an intelligence asset, that's, that's, that's sometimes really what you want, unfortunately. Yeah, guys, just chime in as, um, as you have openings, if you have questions. Oh, okay. I haven't been looking. Or also, if there's questions. things that, there's also things, I mean, if there's something that you want to address, Greg, as well, that you haven't, like, talked about or something about the book you think sh people should know, that's also important, um, you know, because the process of writing these seems like it's just such, such an undertaking, especially with your type of research where you were, like, boots on ground, as they say, um, not just, you know, sitting, you know, you were interviewing these people and... Um, my question is how much of that activity, because there was other paranormal activity um, reported in that area, right? Um, near Kirtland. UFO activity, yeah. Yeah, so um, other people were seeing stuff. Do you think it was all secret tech or do you think that any of it was um, un actually unexplainable by our standards? The stuff Benowitz was involved with was probably mostly secret technology and the stuff that was truly anomalous, that was UFO stuff, I don't really think entered into the story really. I just included it because there are these reports that um, that were released, which I suppose are true, uh, about some UFO sightings over Kirtland Air Force Base. Um, I think they've actually been verified. I think Bruce Maccabee actually looked into it and found out that it found some triangulation of those. So there were anomalous things happening at the Air Force Base. I think anomalous things happen at most military bases. Uh, because one, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Two, and much more important, there's always people there looking <laughs> 24 hours a day, which you don't have in most places. I think the only reason Benowitz saw what he did is because he was up at two in the morning in the middle of the winter freezing his butt off uh, when they expected most people were going to be in bed. So, yeah, I, for the purposes of the book, 
I just included those to show that, you know, this stuff does hang around. It does exist. It does happen around military bases and it does affect how people uh, at the base react to things. Um, but it also shows that they could use, as I said, the subject to to obfuscate and misdirect attention and find out who knew who and all this. Um, and yeah, the, the boots on the ground thing, I guess that's just good old fashioned doing journalism. I went to journalism school, but I, I stopped and I, I, my degree was in art history, you know, very, very, very useful degree. And um, so I had some training in it, but the the thing that, that really helped me is, and I, I've got this, this like, deep-seated belief that I can talk to anybody about anything and get people at their ease pretty easily. Of course, I needed those introductions. Of course, I needed somebody saying this person is, you know, he's not messing around. But I was able to talk to all these people and get some good information and also some personal insight out of some of them. Um, and that was val valuable to me. I mean, the, the fact that Benowitz didn't really have any friends and he really was into his work and that the only thing he really did besides his work was read Wild West novels and fly an airplane. And actually, he was an aerobatic pilot, and it, that that really intrigues me because I have a I have a pilot's license too. So I felt like this kind of kinship with with Benowitz. So it's just you know it was more interesting to me to find out out about these personal stories and how they affected people um, emotionally and how it changed their lives and. Um, how this how this subject it just brings all kinds of different people together uh around certain things i mean the cattle mutilation thing pops up in the book too because gabe valdez who benowitz talked to quite a bit was friends with he was the first person to start actually uh looking at cattle mutilation cases in dulce and around uh, northern new mexico because that was his beat at the time and he showed me a lot of his his um background, uh, a lot of his information, a lot of his photos, and talked to me quite a bit about that, too. That's a whole nother book. Actually, his son, Greg Valdez, wrote a book about it, um, about his father's, um, about his father's uh, files that he um, went through after his father passed away. That yeah. seems interesting. That, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Vinny. I was just going to ask quickly. It seemed that Benowitz was so entrenched in the subject that after meeting um, Myrna Hansen, that he had formulated and solidified his beliefs, even without Doty's influence. And it almost seemed I, that he couldn't yeah. be kind of swayed either way. I thought he had too, and I still believe that. I think Chris Lambright disagrees with me. He wrote Ex Descending, which is another book you might want to read. Um, and he'll give you a different version. Um, but as far as I know, and also from somebody like Gabe Valdez, he told me the same thing. He said Paul really had... As far as I remember, he told me this. Uh, Paul really had this; these ideas pretty much set in his head before um, Myrna showed up, and that that just kind of ramped everything up. And whatever she saw, whenever she was, whatever she was dealing with, um, just kind of added to his uh, his paranoia and his ideas about what was going on. And I think they actually affected each other. Uh, since they were in such close proximity and very um, intimately connected in how they were dealing with what happened to her. She, you know, he was doing the, the the regressions with her, first with Leo Sprinkle and then with um, James Harder. And it got weirder and weirder and weirder until they would only do the, the, uh, the uh, hypnosis sessions in a car covered with barbecue foil to, to block out aliens' rays, control yeah. rays. 
And who knows. knows, maybe he was right, but it just got stranger and stranger very quickly, it seems. Yeah, it seems like the whole Dolce underground base thing revolved around these beings being focused on Myrna's experience in particular. Like they had just decided all of this stuff without any influence from Doty and AFOSI and and all of the externals from yeah, I think Chris thinks that there there was an influence from AFOSI beforehand that that changed his changed his mind and, and drove him down that road that it had started much earlier. I wasn't ab not able to find that. Um, right. I just mentioned this because um, uh, uh, Chris told me this and we discussed it a bit, um, but. Uh, I think that that existed before Doty uh, got involved um, and they just capitalized on it. Um, and the Dulcie thing, I think, even came after that because Myrna didn't say anything about Dulcie. She just said about something about an under, underground facility. And she apparently said that uh, described some place in Manzano, the underground nuclear storage facility that really surprised uh, Doty said surprised him. Now you take that with a grain of salt, but I think I, yeah. I did mention it in the book. Um, I talked to somebody recently that worked there in the last six months, and he said that there was a there was a presidential bunker there who had had the presidential seal on the floor. So it was a, just a place that the if the president happened to be there, they could land there and quickly go underground there in case of a nuclear attack. And then I, I was just at a, a conference over the weekend, a small one, and um, somebody was talking about that. Um, too but you can go take tours of it now apparently because like the cover was blown and now people are just they can't hide it because it was in like prime real estate and it was hidden from the public and people were so upset about it that they had to make it public knowledge and i guess so it's in the middle of a military base i don't know oh okay this might have been a different one then yeah um might have been yeah this this yeah. is Monsanto mountain oh uh, okay yeah storage complex at kirtland air force base actually if you look at a satellite picture of it I may, may actually still be able to do this. You can see mm -hmm. all the little entrances going in, the roads going around oh, in these yeah. bunkers, uh, concrete like doorways. Actually, if you're off the base, I've actually taken pictures of it. If you have a, enough of a telephoto lens, you can actually see the doorways and the little garage door things and a light over them. Wow. Yeah, this is something different. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I have a question. What are your thoughts now after about the whole hypnosis and regression that she went through, that Myrna went through? Because a lot of people that are experiencers are told like, oh, you should do a regression or, you know, um, people use it as evidence. But it seems like it's very hard to have somebody do the regression that doesn't lead, lead them on. What are your thoughts on regression after writing this book? They're the same as before. And I think it's it's just like you said, it's an inaccurate way to get information. I think probably the best information is stuff that comes up consciously. Um, or is directed by somebody that has no interest in the UFO subject whatsoever and is not skeptical or, or hostile to it, which is kind of hard to find still. Um, but, you know, I think hypnosis can be used, but not by UFO researchers. I think that's because it, it has nothing to do so much with the leading, which I'm sure happens, and I've seen it happen. It has more to do with you go to a UFO researcher, what do you think you expect is going to happen when you have somebody regressing you who regresses UFO witnesses? Well, of course, that's what's going to come out. So it's, you know, for, for you know, hypnos hypnotically recalled memories, I, I'm, I'm a little less sure about than something that just somebody says, look, this just spontaneously, um, I, I just remember this. And I, I think I would trust those more. 
even though people can confabulate on their own and all that, it's uh, it, it's a very hard nut to crack. Yes, there is something that's not us. Yes, it does contact us once in a while. Um, but no, I don't think anybody has a real good handle on what it is, except the experiencers themselves. However messy that recall is or however weird they want to be about it, I would trust an experiencer's recall more than I would trust an experiencer's hypnotically recalled recall. That's just how I feel about it right now. That makes perfect sense. Um, I I was wondering, you know, Doty has been popping up again lately. He's been showing up um, at uh, some UK conventions as of late. Uh, he's shown up on some on some Gaia TV programs recently, and um, and he's even joined Twitter. And he was on uh, a space last night, just answering random questions from from folks on Twitter for hours. Um, what like what what do you think about that? Is it old habits die hard? Is it is, is he just is he bored and he loves he loves the community? Like you know what's going? What do you feel like is going on there, or how do you look at that these days? And I have a kind of a like a re loosely related question: If he's kind of up to some of his old tricks, you know, are there other people that you've discovered through your research in the intervening years between these between now and then? Um, that are kind of the undetected Dodies or the undetected Bill Moores um, that are un maybe underknown. Yeah. Um, Doty, for his part, I think he just likes it. He likes attention. He's retired now, so he has time to do this. You notice, I, I noticed after he retired from the New Mexico State Police, he started appearing a lot of these things because he likes it. He likes the attention. He likes people talk to him. He likes the notoriety. Um, and I don't think it's harmful. I don't think it's dangerous. I don't think anything like that. What I think is harmful or dangerous is people start taking him absolutely seriously and following everything he you know, says um, uh, down every rabbit hole, because I don't even think he's aware all the time of what the stories that he's spinning. Um, and yeah, if he ever hears this, he's going to get all mad at me again, but that's okay because he won't talk to me anymore. I don't have any ill will towards him. I just think he's that kind of character and you have to treat him as that kind of character. Um, as at, at this point, kind of, kind of like a fun, you know, sideshow to the UFO thing. Um, interesting, but to me personally, not valuable. I mean, I'm glad he's still around. It's kind of funny to me that he is, but I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, you know, count on anything he says as, as gospel truth. Yes. Did I absolutely. answer all the questions? <laughs> oh, just um, if if you feel like if you've run into any oh, kind of underknown Bill Moores or or Dodies out there, I'm not sure. I think anybody that is says they're from the government and announces something, some inside information, is potentially that kind of person, because I think on the one hand, a lot of them have an absolutely sincere interest in the subject totally sincere interest. They want to know what's going on. That's what John Alexander and, and Hal Putoff and all those people that were in the aviary were, were after during the Benowitz period. They really wanted to know what was behind the UFO thing. And they thought, I think they thought their um, status, their insider status and their clearances could get them that. Uh, ultimately, I don't think it did. But um, I think that still exists and the, the subject is still being used, as I said earlier, for intelligence and defense purposes. Uh, and that 
anybody coming from the government saying anything like that, I, I will listen to them carefully, but I will not believe 100% of what they say. But I will listen to everything because within those stories, there's something usable or interesting that may be completely not related to the UFO thing or at least obliquely related to it in a way that might be important to me uh, and my understanding. So I don't, I'm not like, don't listen to these people. They're, they're lying. I'm just, I'm just more like, you know what? They exist. It's part of the show. If you think it's a useful part of the show to you, then, then deal with it, then, then use it, then, you know, uh, record this stuff. And, but, but, you know, don't think it's the best revelation ever. And this is finally it and all that, because that's like the boy who cried wolf. It's just going to over and over and over again, the same thing. But the, the show is a little different each time. And to me, that's kind of fascinating. It, it, it evolves the way people are. That's the idea about people who are saying, oh, don't speak to Doty. He always lies, as I said before. But um, Vinny and I have seen him twice this year in the UK. I stood in line for coffee with him for about 20 minutes uh, one morning. And, and it wasn't a case of me wanting to ask him questions about this, because as you say, you're not necessarily going to get the truth. You're going to get a version of the truth. Um, but it's, all, it, it's just interesting to size these kind of people up. To see, mm -hmm. to see how they look, how they interact with people on a, on a, on a normal basis, to see what kind of person they are, um, just to have five minutes looking at them and, and just watching them as a normal human being, um, rather than all this other stuff, because that gives you a little bit of an insight into the person as well, rather than asking yeah. them a series of questions, just by just yeah. by watching how they conduct themselves. Yes. Yeah, that's why I will talk to any of these people. It's fine by me, because it's an interesting thing to me. You know, I've, I've, I talked to, even I talked to Lou Elizondo a little bit because I really wanted to know what he thought and what he was going to say and how he interacted with me. And we had a great time. Um, I don't believe everything he says, but he knew that. And we both knew we were playing a silly game. And that, to me, that's interesting. You know, I haven't talked to him in years now, but at the time I talked to him a little bit at one of the conferences at the UAP conference in uh, Huntsville. I think you, you know, your book does a great job of this and you reiterated the point this evening of kind of keeping these things in balance. And I think it's important for everyone to remember that there's not an agenda, there are agendas. I mean, the very fact that you point out in the book, there are multiple three-letter agencies that are interacting at any given time with Paul Benowitz. And I think I can't recall a situation where you weren't saying the NSA you know, wasn't present in the, in the, in the room for a meeting of some sort or another. We don't know who those people are. We just know mm -hmm. they were there. And we, you know, we, we know, we like to think at least in the, in America after nine 11, there's this better coordination. We're all on the same team. We're all kind of doing the same thing, but that is definitely not the case that these agencies have their own agendas. They have their own secrets. They enjoy that kind of power over the secrets that, that they have. And they, they don't give those out very freely. So there's a lot of things going on in this topic. So I think your message is really important that we digest as much as we can and listen as much as we can to then see what kind of cream rises to the top here, if any at all. Uh, but, you know, if you had to, I know you're maybe hesitant to do it, but if you had to speculate as to some something that you feel, you know, strongly about is really going on, what would you say it is? In regards to the government and the UFO issue? Yeah, maybe let, let's start with just the UFO issue, period. Um, I'm as certain as I can be that uh, there is some other intelligence beside us, besides us, and it interacts with us occasionally. 
Now, what form that takes, I, I, I know it probably takes myriad forms. And my biggest question, and I've said this on shows, is my question is not where do you, what are UFOs? Where do they come from? What caught, what, whatever that, you know, what, what, what happens? My biggest question is what causes UFO reports? Because if you ask that question, you start getting into ideas of perception and the neurology of, you know, the human, uh, human nervous system, um, memory, storytelling, trauma, all these things. I think these are really important things in the mix because the most important thing I think is the witness interaction with whatever it is. And if we can concentrate on that rather than the government stuff or, or you know, um, the, 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 the new agey stuff or whatever you want to call it, everything around, that gathers around the UFO issue, I think the, the witness interacting with the phenomenon is the most important thing. And if we can concentrate on that and we can talk to these witnesses and let them say what they want to say rather than what we want them to say, that will begin to crack the enigma a little bit. And I think that understanding is going to come from an understanding of us, not of the ex whatever that external, um, uh, 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 the uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever that external thing is, you know, what, 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 so yeah, what causes UFO reports? I think that's the most important question we can, we can ask right now. That is a great question. And unfortunately, Graham has to go. So thank you so much for Graham. And thank you, Greg. It's been, it's been really interesting listening to to how you were describing the book and, and your research. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you very much. I enjoyed your questions. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye, Graham. Graham. Bye-bye. See, see you soon. Yeah, I wanted to ask, Jay kind of asked this already, but, you know, through this whole process with, like, the New York Times coming out with a big article, you know, until now, what has been, like, the biggest, is there any big red flags, you know, like, things that kind of made you say, mm, like, it just doesn't feel right? Um, well, the whole thing of the government saying we're going to tell you about mm -hmm. UFOs, that just didn't make me feel right, right. because the agenda behind that is so complicated that you can't really get a good read on it. It's just kind of like there's a bunch of people somewhere that figure it's important to talk about this right now for some strange reason. Mm. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the people that were involved, the, the, the naval flyers, the, the pilots, I think they did see something. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's uh, unidentified, you know, flying objects or UAP or whatever you want to call it. Or it's some technology we don't know about that was being tested on them that where the commanders knew what was going on, but nobody else did. Or some combination, I don't know. I mean, that the fact that they swore, there was a swarm of them, they said on the radar, that sounds like drones to me. But it also sounds like swarms of UFOs as yeah. well. So, you know, I think what when this information comes out, it just counts on the the ambiguous nature of the phenomenon to let people you know graft whatever meaning they want onto it or have the meaning grafted onto it for them right um and i think that's part of what's been happening too uh it's i don't know what's going on but i'm i'm pretty sure it's has to do like i said with with uh defense and intelligence and and technology uh, and all those things together, and that we're never going to know what that was. If it's successful or if it's not, 
it's just gonna, the, 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 the furor will die away. Um, it's already dying away now, I think. Unfortunately, Congress and everything got involved in all that, but um, I think, and I predicted this at the beginning, what you're going to see is all this, all this, you know, um, excitement. And then over the next three or four or five years, just, it's just going to go back to nothing again and people will be on to other things. And I'm kind of waiting for that. I would rather people don't pay attention to the UFO right. subject because they bring all, people get all excited and they bring all their, their hopes and their wants and their, and their backgrounds and all that. And it, it, to me, it just, um, it kind of it kind of confuses the field to me and then when all this falls away the people that were there before that are still working at this and still working really hard and still trying to figure out what's going on will still be there and it'll be it'll be nice and quiet and we can go back to the you know to the work of doing what we want to do which is studying this thing and maybe figuring out what it might be or at least i think the understanding the first understanding is going to come as i said from how we see it not what it is um, and if we can understand that, that will be part of the answer. Um, yeah. And once everybody, everything quiets down and the government's out of it and all that, we can go back to that. And it's been bubbling up. In fact, the good thing about all this is it got a whole bunch of people who are serious and have degrees and have backing and have, you know, the wherewithal and the interest to look at it like Gary Nolan and like, you know, um, um, uh, uh, Jeff Kripal down at, uh, at Rice University, all these people, um, Mike Masters, uh, the, the guy from uh, Wyoming, all these people are now interested in it in a way that they weren't because it, it was made safe for them to be interested. That's another thing I think happened um, and was done intentionally is somebody somewhere wanted serious people to look at this. And that that fallout is, is I think that's the most wonderful fallout of all from, from all of this. And those people will stay Absolutely. interested. And that excites me. I mean, the most Absolutely. interesting conversations I've had are with academics right now. I don't, I, so those are the people, when I go to these conventions, I seek them out. I sought out Mike Masters and kept bugging him until we finally <laughs> went to a football game together and we talked for a while about this. And it's, it's much more valuable for me to talk to these people about this than it is to talk to, you know, a UFO researcher or, you know, Corey Good or whatever. I really want to talk to people that are that are coming to this from outside of the field and being um, and being serious and being circumspect about it and not jumping conclusions. Um, that that's 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 amazing. And the, and the private conversations you have with these people, you're like, wow, you're a real weirdo. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have expected you to, you know, a lot of a lot of cases. And so it's it's it's. Um, it's been a real eye-opening experience, and so yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I thank uh, the New York Times and Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal for doing that article because it's the fallout has been, you know, a lot of it has been wonderful. I wouldn't have met Jay without the, the article. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's I wouldn't have met any of these people because I was afraid to talk about it um, because I didn't want people to think I was like super crazy, you know. Um, but after meeting everybody, it's it's brought so many people around into the community and people that have been wanting to talk about the subject for so long can now talk about it without, it'll be, some people are still not on board, but more, more and more people are going to listen to them and not treat them like a crazy outsider. Um, I, yeah. I think that the community has been more of a blessing to me than anything. And um, it's even encouraged me to finish my science degree because I'm like, I can't do anything without my science degree, you know, because <laughs> I started it and had kids like, oh, pause. And then, 
but it's really encouraged me because I'm like, I can't do anything without science. And that's after hearing Gary Nolan speak at your conference, Jay. And also um, after talking to Jeff and Diana, um, I'm like, yeah, like I, it's motivating me in a positive direction. And maybe that's kind of what we have to focus on. And it brings it back to what you said, the people, right? We have to focus on the people. Yeah, we really do have to focus on the, the people that are in, interacting with this because I think that's our closest connection to whatever is going on. And it comes with a lot of baggage and it comes with a lot of noise, but it also comes with a lot of insight. And you have to, just like the uh, um, intelligence stuff, you have to be open to it all, even the stuff that you think is weird or woo-woo or whatever it is. Um, you know, so some people are like, Greg, you're so, you know, you're so logical about this. And then you start, you know, talking about channeling and stuff. What's wrong with you? I said, there is signal in a lot of this stuff. You have to be open to that signal. That signal can come from anywhere. And it's not going to be a coherent signal either. And it's not going to be a signal that's for everybody. It's going to be for each individual. And that's the toughest one. I think the, the, the example I give is you go to a UFO convention and you see two people that have never met each other before who have had completely different experiences, but they both know they're talking about the same thing. That's that to me is like that, that is a real um, that is a real signal in the noise. It's like they they both know something extremely strange and life changing has happened to them and that most people don't understand. Um, I've been actually championing championing this guy, um, Finn Handley, who I think may be listening. Uh, he's in England. He's been taking witness descriptions and and making videos with with uh, computer animation of what yeah. they described. The closest you can possibly get to having a UFO experience. And I think if more people see these things and see what happened to people and say, look, this is not made up stuff. This is from the witness going back and forth with the with the um, with the artist and creating these things, and he doesn't put music on them, he doesn't put narration. All he puts on it is a sound effect. So you're basically sitting in the same space as that person, experience as much as you can what they experience. We're even trying to get he he is even trying to get to the point, and he did it in this last video where he shuts all the sound out, the Oz effect sound. Like some guys watching this thing, you hear wind, and suddenly it goes zoop, and there's no more wind because that's what the guy said he experienced. And as the thing flies off over the hill, the wind fades back in. You can hear the high wind again. In case it happened. That's powerful. That's powerful for an experiencer. Like I, I shared my experience with a, a gentleman that did a similar thing. Probably not. I, I mean, and just seeing it come to life after all the years. And I've even had um, a friend's mom drew it for me after I told her about it, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, it's things like that that mean a lot to us, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm not somebody that's like, listen to my story every two minutes, but I have experienced the unknown. And to me, it, it really gives me comfort to know that people are getting, doing the work, like all of you here, like you, Greg, especially writing your book, doing all that work. Graham wrote amazing books too. Jay with the Experiencer Group, Nathan, mm -hmm. just everything you do, Vinny, like you're all just so amazing. And it, no matter what happens with the government, they cannot tear apart the relationships that are being built right now. Um, but I wanted, I have a question. Um, I know that we're coming on the hour and I don't want to keep anybody too long. Um, do you have time for a few audience questions? Yeah, I'm fine. I, the, yeah, today's okay. open. Okay. Thank and you. then also um, after that, I want to ask you, you know, what your plans are for the future and all that, you know. <laughs> so um, okay. we have a question Thank about you. another controversial character. Um, 
Deb is an amazing person, by the way. Um, she says, does the, do you talk about Linda Milton Hall part um, and who, why she was given fake docs? Do you know anything about that? She was, I did describe that in there. I did describe when she came to the base and Dodie sat her down in a chair and there were people looking from one way glass on the other side to see her reaction. And they showed her a bunch of documents. I think most of them were fake. Some of them weren't. Um, wow. But at the time I talked to a couple people that she met with a day or two after that. And they said she was very excited, thought she'd been let in on something very important. And, you know, for, for, you know, for her part, she kind of was, mm. um, but I think they were trying to get her attention because uh, Dodie said that she had made that uh, documentary on cattle mutilations and that it was very accurate and it had scared some people or whatever. Of course, he's going to say that she's a journalist. Um, right. But I thought that I think that what they thought was that um, uh, she could be used as uh, an asset to to um, spread different types of information. I don't know if that was that ever happened. Um, I think she's smart enough to know if she was getting disinformation, especially, you know, in the years after that. And that, um, you know, it, it was it was just another like kind of reach out to the community to see if they could uh, have a witting or an unwitting asset uh, available. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things going on with Benowitz. I mean, they, they weren't just trying to figure out what he was looking at. They were trying to figure out who he knew, who he was talking to, who was paying attention to him, <clears throat> who was writing to him. Uh, you know, if he got a letter from Russia, they'd have to see where that person was coming from or who, you know, if they really were a Russian UFO researcher, just stuff like that. Um, and Dodie and a couple other people told me, and I wouldn't doubt it, that a couple of spy networks were kind of taken down because of Benowitz, because they found out who was talking to whom, because of the assets they had in Russia. And some of them were, they had American assets in Russia and Russia had ones here. And they each try to find out who was doing what. Um, and uh, if there was danger of having them uncovered, they had to find out who those people were and, and who was trying to uncover it. So there was, Bill told me this once. He said, imagine the Benowitz operation as a giant stage play that lasts for 24 hours. And the, he said, uh, the producer is, is Falcon and the director was um, Richard Helms, who was the head of the CIA at the time. But what happened with Benowitz was one scene for two minutes in this giant play. And him and Dodie were just little bit players in one scene for two minutes in a 24 hour long play. That's what people have to realize because people think that there was this giant operation to misinform the UFO community and and, and send Benowitz off on, uh, on a tangent and, uh, and uh, you know, infiltrate uh, the, the UFO community, all that. No, it was just, it was one cog in a huge machine. Um, and that's all I'm describing in the book. But that one cog took up a 250-page book. So um, there's a whole bunch of other cogs you don't know about, and we never will know about. And that's kind of how I think about what's going on now with the with, with the with the um, disclosure stuff. It's a tiny little cog at a huge wheel at a huge machine that we will never know about whether it succeeds or not. Yeah, so that's scary to think about um, because. Benowitz was a pretty intense, you know, two minutes. So to think that there's more minutes like that happening in the play, you know, but that's a great analogy. Um, and yeah. Gerald wants to know what you think about Skinwalker. What Paul does? Um, it says, what is Paul? I know, I don't is think he mean me? Paul. 
I, I think so. Do you mean? Yeah, I don't know. Or what did Paul Benowitz say? I don't think yeah, Skinwalker actually happened yeah. at that point. I think it was still owned by the yeah. the, the Shermans or whoever originally owned the mm -hmm. ranch. What I think about it, if it, if it's me, is that as far as I can tell, and from the people that I talked to that have, that worked there at the time um, when Bigelow was running it. Um, Actually, um, Gabe Valdez was under contract to to do some cattle mutilation stuff while they were he he was paid by mm. NIDS to do some of that. Um, I think there was was and is strange things going on there. I don't think it's just a bunch of stories. Um, and I also think that, based on who I talked to, at least the first iteration of it, uh, the Benowitz. I mean, sorry, the uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, Bigelow iteration of it that the attempt was made to to gather scientific data. The problem was just gathering scientific data does not encompass the entirety of what's going on there, just like it doesn't entire, encompass the entirety of the paranormal or UFOs. Simple scientific data does not tell you the whole story. And in fact, they were thwarted in that by cameras turning off and sensors not working and all that other stuff. Um, so I think science can touch this phenomenon, but it can't give us the full picture, which is why I keep pushing for the arts and the humanities and psychology and all these things to be included in the study of UFOs, because that kind of meaning, that the, the meaning that comes to our lives from, from those areas is directly reflected in UFO uh, experiences. What else can change your life in five minutes? You know, the greatest piece of art in the world or a really nice movie or whatever, or a song that really touches you that can change your life in five minutes. UFOs can do that too. So there's something going on there that we have to pay attention to. Um, and, and so right now I've actually been giving lectures on that and I'm going to, I'm going to try and pursue that as time goes on. And Priscilla disappeared. Oh, there she is. I had to go yell at the kids. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're happily eating goldfish, but kids are very loud when, Oh, now they're not happy. Sorry about that. Yeah. I was like, okay. there. yeah. And yeah. But um, yeah, it's very interesting. It's all, it's all such a mind scramble when you think about it. You know, I, I don't believe in anything anymore. And it's, it's kind of crazy. Like I remember Good. growing up, I was like, they're demons <laughs> and angels. And then, then I'm, after that, I'm like, no, they're definitely aliens, obviously. And then I start reading about quantum mechanics and then I'm like, they could be from somewhere else. And then you got, you know, the many worlds theories happening. We've got how put-offs work happening. And um, the best yeah. thing that I heard Jeff Kripal say was the best thing, don't believe your beliefs. And that kind of yeah. stuck with me because how can you, after you actually do the research, how can you? And, and no, there's it's everything. Flags and people are like, it's definitely this. It's definitely that, you know, people on the far end of the spectrum that are like, they're all from Lyra and I'm a star seed and they gave me this message, you know, and I'm going to listen to those people. Because what if they're right? But at the same time, if you know, and whatever you're in contact with is telling you 100%, this is what's happening, you still need to question that as well. Because we still exactly. don't know where they actually are from. Something that can play with our perception and tap into our consciousness is very scary, um, for better or worse, you know? So Yeah, and we, we also have to remember, and I think Jay would agree with me, we have agency in this. We can we can direct what's going on, no matter what we're told or what we're told to believe, or even what we're told to believe by whatever entity or whatever's talking to us. I think we can keep our agency in this and be 
as much as possible detached from whatever that experience is. Now, if it's something that's telling you to, you know, get a cult around you and kill people and all that, probably you shouldn't listen to that. But if it's something that's telling you to love everybody and to be nice to people and all that, yeah, I'd kind of go along with that. You know, it's not so, going to hurt to love more people, right? Yeah, exactly. Just giving nice messages. <laughs> so it, you know, it kind of depends on the person you are. I've got another thing I talk about called co-creation, which is like the the UFO thing seems to it interacts with who we are as people, as a as a you know as a person, it'll interact with you and it will reflect back to you the you know almost like the LSD thing set and setting it's going to reflect back to you exactly where you're from and who you are and all that stuff and that's what you have to work with and realize that that's you know maybe flattering you but it's you know whatever it is uses the the um the raw material the putty of your 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 personality to create that experience i think um but you have to realize that um and work with that that you know that that's as far as i can take it right now i mean uh you guys may have different ideas, which I'd like to hear, but that's my idea right now about what we're dealing with. Any others? I was going to ask Jay if you want to weigh in on that. <laughs> oh, um, no, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I mean, I think the co-creative hypothesis is a, is a, and, or also what, um, you know, Sean Aspern Hargens talks about as the mutual enactment hypothesis. I think there's there's kind of a lot of overlap in those two ideas. And I think that there's a lot. Oh, of it's there. not an original idea at all. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that and I think that the that it's really important to think about agency, personal agency with regard to, you know, whether it's if you're going to listen to if you're only going to listen to what comes out of Capitol Hill or you're only going to listen to what comes out of, you know, Cryon or Seth or whoever the heck else, you know, from the <laughs> channeling literature, or if you're going to listen to the, you know, or if you're just going to listen to your own intuition and things like that. I mean, there's there, I, I, I'm with you in terms of, you know, questioning your own beliefs and, and looking at what kind of predisposition predispositions you might have um, that might, you know, kind of bewilder oneself when it comes to these topics and, and, and being able to like escape those own traps, those own mental traps can be really important. Right. And so, uh, you know, it goes back to what you were saying right at the outset in terms of being able to hold three or four or five different views or positions at once and being able to kind of like juggle those, you know, that is a skill set. you know, it's a very, very admirable skill to have and it can be really challenging and it can be uh, one of those headache forming situations <laughs> why people will rage quit the field, you know, left and right um, because no, they can't they want it to you know, be something that it isn't. You know? Yeah. As soon as you say it's this thing, you're going to have a hundred people telling you why that's wrong with the UFO thing. And it's that I've believed that almost from the beginning. That's why our magazine was called the excluded middle. Let's, let's find the thing that people aren't screaming about. Let's go, let's stay away from the both from the complete skeptic and the complete believer and see what's there in the middle that nobody really looks at. And it's fun too, Jay. I mean, to, to juggle all these things. I don't, I don't look at it as something that drives me crazy. I'm like, I, I have fun with the juggling. You yeah. Know? Like, there's oh, always yeah. something to read. Oh, there's always something cool. to research. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. always something new that you can look into. It keeps your mind busy for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's something that I find. I think that people 
look at the base subjects and they go in a pyramid and they think that eventually they're going to get to this peak. But what I found from getting to that peak is that it suddenly opens up again <laughs> into an even bigger possibility, uh, you know, so many things. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's too easy to look at this from the comfort of your own chair online, you know, get out there, do boots on the ground research, look at it for yourself. Don't follow the mainstream narrative all the time. Don't sit and wait for answers. Go and ask the questions. Go and get your feet dirty, and and you know, you'll you'll yeah. find some blessings in that. I think. And the other cool thing about this is I've met so many great people and had made so many great friends and so many intelligent people that just totally inspire me. Like, what other subject can do that? Yeah. I mean, I've met every I've met completely crazy people, and I've met <laughs> people that are so smart it scares me, and it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know why sometimes I talk to people I'm like I am a freaking potato compared to this person I want to understand what they're saying and I want to right. catch up with them and I want to make the effort to give myself a headache to understand what they're talking oh for sure because there might be some gold there for me yeah it pushes your mental boundaries you know too and that's it's good for us to do that as humans um mm -hmm. so what are you what are you working on now can you talk about that like um, are you working on any specific thing now that um, we can? We're almost done with our ufology tarot deck. Oh, um, the, well, the God. minor arc. I mean, sorry, the major arcana. Um, the major arcana. Um, I've been following that. I've been following that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. The That's one, cool. the one that Miguel Romero, the artist in the group, mm -hmm. just finished was um, um, uh, the Wheel of Fortune, which is basically we said, what are we going to do with the Wheel of Fortune? I, I, <laughs> Everybody kind of takes over a card, I guess, in some way. And my idea at the beginning of the, that card was that the wheel just keeps turning, right? Mm. It's like, well, that's like ufology. It's, you know, here, this thing comes oh, so over and over and over and over and over and over again. So we've, in the upper left, we have a space brother. and the upper right, we have um, the, um, I think, a Syrian, the Zoroastrian, uh, oh. being the guy that's sitting on the winged vehicle that okay. people say is a UFO or whatever it probably is. <laughs> the Anunnaki guy on the UFO chair. Yeah. yeah. Lower right, there's a, there the four quadrants, you know, on the original card, it's the, uh, the four, the, uh, the eagle, the bull, oh, the man, Guys, the, now he's talking tarot. You can't leave. You can't yeah. leave. I, I'm a card reader. <laughs> so, um, I've been following that deck. That is so yeah. cool. Go on. So you have lower right, there's a crashed UFO and lower left is the cash landro. And so oh, that wow. represent the Space Brothers stuff, the ancient aliens stuff, the crashed UFO, you know, mythos, and then for the government, the, the crashed UFO, meaning, you know, uh, disclosure and all that. And the other one is the military connection because of Cash Landrum. And so, yeah. and at the top of the wheel is a homunculus of the man and the woman from the Voyager craft. It's male and female. One's pointing up, one's pointing down. Um, and instead of a instead of a snake coming down the left side like in the in the what Rider Waite Smith tarot, there is a two intertwined snakes that look like DNA with the lines between them. Wow. And on the right, there's a symbol for Algol instead of the an Anubis character, uh, representing the internet uh, and algorithms, That's and amazing. that that part of it. So the, the this this wheel just goes around and around and around and around and around. So we're just trying to tell everybody, yeah, you know, maybe you should get off that wheel. <laughs> right, like we're like little hamsters sometimes. Um, yeah, I'm super. So, that's like two of my favorite things. Like I, my husband's always like, "Don't buy any more tarot decks." I'm like, "Well, there's one I'm waiting for when they finish it." So he's <laughs> getting one more. <laughs> yeah, well, we're gonna finish the in the next 
month, we're going to finish the minor, I'm sorry, the major arcana with a book along with it. If you were in the Kickstarter, you get one um, that explains every card. Got about an 800 page, I'm sorry, a 600 word essay on each card. Who is on the card, what it means, some of the Easter eggs, not all of them. <laughs> um, and uh, what the idea was when I, I was sitting alone in a cafe about five years ago was just like, oh, wow, what if I combined ufology with tarot? What would happen? And I presented it to my group and they were like, oh, geez, we're doing that. <laughs> so for the past two years, that's all we've been doing. And we set up the you know Kickstarter and we, you know, we meet every week and we talk about each card for somewhere between 10 and 20 hours discussion on each card, who's going to be on it, what's the symbolism. And then if we can, we write to the person and ask them, because there's three of them on there that are actually living people that are still here. Jacques Vallée is the magician. Mm -hmm. um, Whitley Strieber is the fool, which he picked. I asked him because I didn't well, it's want not to... bad in tarot, you know. If, if it's you not. <laughs> people exactly. say that, oh, he's the fool. It's like, no, no he's the, it's not he's like the wise fool. It's like it's like a young soul going out onto an adventure. Yeah, so we have him actually walking with a giant key because of the book, the key. Behind him is his cabin with an owl flying up over it. Uh, in the sky, there's a boomerang UFO. And on the other side, there's the big alien from the cover of Communion. His two cats are with him that were with him in the cabin. He sent <laughs> us awesome. pictures of his cats so I we could include it. them on the card. <laughs> and he's walking off a cliff. And the cats, the, the you know, on the card, the Rider Waite Smith, the dog's going, no, don't do it. Yep. Cats, whatever, because they're cats. <laughs> cats don't care. <laughs> Doesn't bother. And cliff. Whitley's <laughs> walking off the cliff, and he's just looking into the sky like this, and he's, you know, and it's just to us, it just symbolizes Whitley just went straight off the cliff, so and perfect. he knew exactly what he was doing, and you know, so when he saw the card, he said, "Oh my God, that's perfect." I was so happy when he said that. So, and then uh, Jenny Randall's was the other living person. That's the um, the high priestess. And uh, she loved hers too. Yeah. It's beautiful. But there's just everything. It's just, we tried to cram everything in there that we could possibly find out about the people's lives. Like Jenny, she, she's very, in, she has a lot of cats. She's like a cat lady. So we, we put a little tiny cat pin on her, Miguel did on her, on her um, suit, on her blazer, <laughs> on her dress. I mean, actually. The art's been amazing for them that you've been, that, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Rosemary, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a temperance. And she's got, she's got one foot in the water with a with a lake monster grabbing her leg, and in, <laughs> behind her, instead of that 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 row of irises or whatever, there's, there's some woods and a bigfoot's running away. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, you're having fun with it, but I love how yours it's still sticking with so much of the symbology as you're explaining it of the Ryder Wyatt. So you can have fun with it. There's so many decks out there that do that, but um, there's no good UFO ones. So I'm very excited for you guys to finish. Thank you. That's that's the that's the project that's like right in front of our my face right now that I'm really totally paying attention to and really excited about. And they'll be sent out probably some. We said fall, but we're gonna. What Kickstarter has kind of come in on time, so we're probably gonna send them out in January. I I didn't see it till like way later. Um, I think I barely saw it. Like maybe we're printing extras. Yeah. I better go to the Kickstarter before anybody listens to this like, and goes and gets the extras. Um, so what we like to do in book club at the end, um, we can hang out longer too, but before I forget, um, we recommend a book and Graham didn't want to recommend a book because he's being a brat. Um, but would, would you like to recommend a book? Uh, what we do is we put them in a hat and we pick for like next month, what we're going to read for until we meet again. So would you like to recommend a book, Craig? Oh, wow. 
There's so many. Oh and, my uh, God. Angels <laughs> right. and Aliens by Keith Thompson is really good. It'll go in the hat. Okay. Yeah. I mean, anything by Valet, which you've probably already done, already done that. Anything by John Keel, which you've already done that. Um, People yeah. of the Web by Greg uh, Little, who you, who's still around and you can have on your show. That would be cool. That's kind of like the aim. You know, we've had some, it's hard to get, obviously, like, we couldn't get a hold of L.A. and we, he's busy, um, but we've read his books. Um, that's just our goal is to get people reading, you know, about UFOs. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> yeah, the, off the top of my head, those would be really good ones. Uh, and Josh Cutchin's book, his latest one, The Ecology of Souls. Uh, that's impressing a lot of people right now. And he's a friend of mine. So, yeah, get, get his book. <laughs> awesome. So, Jay, what did you bring for this month? Oh, let's see. Um, what would be too good? Um, uh, well, I did just get my copy of uh, oh, The UFO Rabbit Hole by, by, by Kelly Chase, um, who is who is uh, buddies with all of us. And uh, oh, we're, we're going to see her in a few weeks out here in New York. Um, and uh, she was maybe going to even be here today, but she had a, she had something else she had to do. Um, yeah. But um, let's see, uh, maybe that or or I kind of would love to do like Missing Time by Bud Hopkins. I think that that'd be really yeah. fun. It's a really classic book that has a lot of boots on the ground investigative reporting in the early sections of the book. Um, it's kind of a stone cold classic, and it's pretty fun. So. I don't know. I just picked two books, and that's that's wrong of well, me. We're gonna. Um, I feel like so we're gonna put Kelly's book in. We're gonna put okay, Kelly's book in because it's Kelly. All right, there you go. All right, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, Bud Hopkins is on one of our cards. Yeah. Sorry about the screaming in the back. Oh, that's all right. The gremlin. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I was upstairs getting ready for this, and my husband comes home because Hinneman, my son, five, my five year old just did his first little. Uh, 10k today with my husband this morning and mm -hmm. he comes home and he's like did you let vance that's my three-year-old eat chocolate chips and i come downstairs and he had climbed into the cupboard and it's just eating <laughs> handfuls of chocolate chips like the baking chocolate chips oh no like, the trickster must be heard yep yep <laughs> my issue with that is how you say little and 10k but my husband's like it's gonna be cold and i don't know if vance is gonna make it i'm like oh yeah vance i'll stay with him <laughs> i'm not they're all the, my husband and my son are the, all the energy my oldest son so <laughs> so he took my spot he got his little trophy anyways um vinny you know, I always like to keep it kind of with my friends. Uh, and I think I probably did this last month, but I'm going to go with UFO Files on my good friend, Dr. David Clark. Keeping it UK. Love it. Very good book. And I've never been picked either. I know. <laughs> I know. It's going to happen. <laughs> All right, Nathan. All right, so I've got uh, John Max. Production. Ooh, uh, what's interesting good. about this, uh, Greg, is that if you look at the back, the very first comment recommendation for this book on the back cover is Keith Thompson, author of Angels and Aliens. <laughs> so I want to put that in uh, for a recommendation as well. All right. Yeah, he's on our card too. Bud Hopkins, Leo Sprinkle, and uh, John Mack are on the chariot. Awesome. That's beautiful. 
Uh, Priscilla, what's your book? Do you have a book? I didn't She's have one. I don't know if you guys are going to want to read it, but um, I kind of I read it when it like when it came out, but I got like a signed copy yesterday, uh -huh. so I kind of want to reread it. Um, UFO investigation <laughs> methodology uh -huh. for a new age by Richard Lang. Okay. Um, so I read. I met him yesterday. I was Keep so cutting. nervous because he's just, you know, I, I don't know why, but he was super <laughs> chill and. Um, people are so nice. I just think that I have like, if a man looks stern, I'm like, oh, he's mean, but I, but he ended up being really nice. So <laughs> that's going to be my book, my book. And I think that it's something a lot of people should read if they want to, um, investigate more because it's kind of like step by step. This is what you should do. And he has his own personal insight and I just think it's cool. So you guys are probably praying that a methodology book doesn't get picked, but <laughs> Richard Lang. Oh, Caught me at the end of a COVID uh, bout, which I've never had before. So I'm oh, just no. coughing a little bit. That, that's I've been coughing. I'm telling you, like I keep getting sick because my son goes to school and brings things home. <laughs> yeah, they're they're disease sponges. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They really are. <laughs> and then they like touch their face and they want to touch your face and I sneeze right in your face. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like I'm leaving the house. With <laughs> I I look down. I'm like I gotta change my shirt. There's like kid boogers on me. <laughs> you know, you just. Sometimes you just leave with it. You're like, I don't even care. <laughs> my son, my husband's married. I'm married. I don't have to impress anybody outside the house. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this is our UIP secrecy hat or my, it looks all fuzzy because it fell on the ground. All right. I'm just looking at some of the, some of the uh, comments. Guess what we picked. And I'm super excited. Kelly's book. Yeah, that's all right. All right. That's going to be Kelly great. Kelly Pace. That's awesome. That is all awesome. Right. Fantastic. We'll have her on. We can rip it to shreds right in front of her. Just, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be good. Excellent. It's definitely going to be good. Yeah, oh, I'm excited. Man. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been yes, amazing. Absolutely. Sure, I really enjoyed yeah, it. This is really like, nice. you know, I sometimes I get tired of talking about the book, but this was actually really fun. So thank no, you. Anything, uh, anything thank you goes. So That's why I try to ask the guests, like, is there anything that you want to talk about? What are you doing now? Because some of these books are great. And just, I mean, your book is great. It still is. But at the same time, like people move on and they write other things and people yeah. tend to focus on like their most impactful or their first book. Um, yeah. So it's I'm a 15 glad year old book, I think. Yeah, it's, Actually, it's needed, isn't it? It's scary how it's needed right now, though. Like people need to read that to re be reminded. Um, yeah. Yeah. Everything. Thank you. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of a lesson. It's a it's a it's a spy it's a spy book with UFO trappings. Um, <laughs> that's kind of how I thought of it. And yeah, I mean it, the, the the themes I think are still, as you say, they're still relevant. So thanks for having me on to talk about. It. Yes, thank you so much for coming. And I think that Jay said he had to go now. Um, I'm going to end the live. Thank you to everybody in the chat that showed up. I really appreciate you. Share, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Um, make sure you go into the description and follow everybody here. I have Greg's information. I have everybody's um, like social media and websites in the description. So go follow them. Um, thank you to anybody listening on Anomalous Podcast Network to audio only or audio only in general on YouTube. And uh, please just keep coming, keep reading. And I look forward to seeing everybody next week. Next week, it's going to get a little witchy. I'm having a hoodoo um, practitioner on. So she's going to talk about cleansing, 
And she's also um, just released a pocketbook of demonic names for the paranormal investigator and, and uh, exorcist. So that should be pretty fun. Everybody hang out for a minute afterwards and have a great night.